Welcome to episode four of An Unscripted Woman, a podcast that's all about women living luminous lives. I'm Lael Cooper Jepson, and I'm so glad you're here. Since releasing my book at the end of 2015, many of you have expressed a desire to hear me read an audio version of my book, Unscripted, A Woman's Living Prayer. This podcast is my creative response to that desire. Each week, beginning in September 2016, I'll be reading a chapter from my book aloud on this podcast, and then we'll be riffing on it a bit as I'm a, of what I'm aware of and what I've learned since writing it. To make it easier to follow along, you'll find that each episode of this podcast corresponds to the title of each chapter from my book. And I want to remind you, just like I did with writing my book, you don't need to read these chapters or listen to the podcast in any particular order. To whet your appetite of what this podcast will be like, I'll be releasing the first six episodes this summer. The rest will be coming starting in September. Beyond that intention, I'm not entirely sure where this podcast will go, but I'm willing to find out if you are. I hope you'll join me, and here's how. Follow this podcast on SoundCloud or subscribe to it via iTunes so each new episode will magically appear in your podcast feed. If you follow my blog or my She Changes Facebook page, you'll see each episode posted out there as well. As always, you can find out more about me and my business at SheChanges.com. So here we go. Chapter 4, Gathering Myself. I had a terrifying experience during my first homecoming women's weekend retreat. The short story is that I encountered myself and I didn't recognize me at all. In that split moment, I felt so many conflicting emotions, shame, pride, an acute sort of dislocation from myself, and a renewed commitment to improving the accuracy of my self-perception. On the first day of the retreat, I came upon a group of women who were talking about me, Only I didn't recognize this woman as me. Even after 10 or 15 minutes of listening to them talk quite animatedly about this woman and her accomplishments, her love of life, and her way of being in the world, she was enviable. I was entranced. I wanted to meet her and knew that we would instantly be fast friends. When I couldn't stand it any longer, I inserted myself and asked, who is this woman? All of them laughed. I was confused. Had I missed the joke? One of them turned to me, realizing I had no clue, and said quite simply and gently, as if she was pulling back this curtain that would let in a blinding light, It's you, Lael. Even sharing this story many years later, I feel shame. And then I wince, because it feels vain to relay such a story. It's not easy to admit you fell in love with yourself when someone else was describing you. In reading this, you might imagine I was flattered. After all, these women were talking about how much they admired me, how I had admired me. Yet there was was that, the flattery. But like so much of my story, that sensation of being proud, of savoring, of acknowledging who I am and how I show up in the world was just outside my reach. And that made it almost worse because I realized this was the very behavior of mine that had gotten me to this point. Is this how I made myself invisible to myself? It wasn't about being modest or coy or humble. It was about closing my eyes to me. It was about not seeing me. And that was terrifying because I knew better. 
That day at my retreat was an important part of my story because it was when I started to realize just how many holes I had in my self-perception. Enough, it seems, that I couldn't even recognize myself when people were talking about me. This became one of the central drivers for why I felt compelled to learn to see myself more clearly, the entirety of me, and fill in the missing pieces of my reflections so that I'd recognize me in a crowd. I made a promise to myself that day that I would never let myself get to that point again, so full of holes and gaps that I lost my vision of myself. I began to dig down to see if I could find the root of this behavior in myself. I knew quite well the traps of relying on others to offer that insight for you. While it's lovely and affirming, it's also external and not being sourced from within. I wanted to open up the channel for that same energy, that same love, to come from inside me. I wanted to be able to see, appreciate, and love myself as fully and as unconditionally as those around me did. While I was still mulling over this experience post-retreat, I came across a poem written by a good friend, Jessica Esch. It tapped into the same vein of desire that was pulsating through me. There once was a wonderful, magical woman who people looked upon with envy and admiration. People thought their lives would improve tenfold if they could be more like her. But the magical woman's mirror was broken. She did not think she was special at all. We are taught to see the best in others. No one tells us to look inside ourselves with the same intention. I think that is sad. It makes me wonder about the sun. Does she know of her beauty, the joy she brings, the majesty emanating from her core, or does she envy the moon? One Mother's Day, not too long ago, my youngest son crawled into bed with me in the morning with a big grin, ready to finally give me the gift he'd been waiting a six-year-old's version of forever to give me. In the days leading up to this big moment, he tried on multiple occasions to strike sophisticated bargains that would enable him to give me his presence sooner. Needless to say, I made him wait, and it was so worth it, because in that moment, as his little chest was near to bursting with anticipation and pride, I unrolled a beautiful piece of artwork, a fill-in-the-blank activity that was lovingly prompted and laminated by his teacher. And in doing so, I felt as if I had unrolled myself. My son didn't just give me a gift that morning. He gave me a reflection of myself. There it was. There I was, all boiled down to words and phrases that expressed how he saw me. The things I knew and took pride in. The fact that I'm creative. Own my awesome. Or awesome. O-S-U-M. And make a mean chocolate chip cookie. Then there were the things I didn't tend to see in myself, my beauty, my compassion, and the degree to which I care for those I love. But as I read through all of this on that morning with him by my side, one line shimmered brightly through my ear, my tears. My mom always says, be careful, or careful, C-A-R-F-L. Long after we had snuggled and marveled over the color choices in his art or the, and the heartfelt words he chose, I stayed in bed and thought about that one particular phrase. I wasn't simply belaboring a shortcoming, beating myself up again or fretting over the past. 
I wasn't discounting all the other thoughts and sentiments on his card. There weren't any harsh judgments or charged accusations as I held his card. It was different this time. This time I was seeing myself more clearly, looking through his eyes. He couldn't have known it at the time, but he was delivering to me yet another story that I had outlived. More than something I had moved beyond in my past, this particular phrase was now getting in my way of living into my future. Be careful. I read that phrase and I winced. Because I knew if I were to unpack that particular phrase, I would find an infestation of words that had me playing small, living in doubt, feeding my fear. That phrase contained things like, get it right, don't take risks, and you're not blank enough. I knew them all intimately, but I never before had them seen together so clearly, presenting such a united front, staring me down boldly from behind the safe cover of lamination. I reflected on how I had uttered that phrase, be careful, to my kids. I could make a case for that being a patent and perfectly standard caution that comes out of most parents' mouths without even realizing it. But that would be an excuse for me not to look closer at what was being shown. Do I want to live my life carefully? The answer was a resounding no. Since that day, I've been reflecting on just how much those two stale words, be and careful, have soured my life's ambition. The sail of my spirit has been full of wind for most of my life, but now I see there's a reserve sail I've had stashed in the hatches that would, be ena that would enable me to catch even more wind. It's about facing fear, essentially. It seems that I've been afraid of the wrong things. It's not making messy art or plunging into the unknown I ought to fear. It's the seductive lure of being careful, calling me like a siren to the rocks of perfectionism as it whispers sweet nothings in my ear about safety, as it keeps me from my dreams, the discovery, the experience, the journey, living, life. I started to retreat inward, convinced that this was my unique experience, but I was wrong. This is not just about me. In telling my own story, I've learned that this is a common experience we share as women. Simply put, we don't see ourselves clearly. I would wage a bet that we only see pieces, and often not the best ones, that create a kind of hodgepodge impression, a far cry from the big, bold, and beautiful expression that complete strangers often experience of us. What I've discovered in my own exploration of this dynamic in myself is that I had become, or perhaps I always was, a foul-weather friend to myself, not seeing the good parts of myself, but making it a habit of zeroing in on the less savory pieces. There were holes where the good pieces ought to have lived. I was like Swiss cheese. I often joked with my friends about my tendency to flog myself, beating myself up again and again for my shortcomings or mistakes. I'd been told not to be so hard on myself and to cut myself some slack, but somehow it was ingrained. So much so, I didn't even feel it. It had just become a way of living. The unfortunate consequence of this habitual flogging is that the, those moments I felt pride or love for myself were quickly overshadowed 
They were transient. They didn't get pinned for posterity and tucked into the corners of my mirror. They flashed into my consciousness and then fleeted, resurfacing occasionally or not at all. That sad truth is that when I did see it happening, I had this wonderful and noble justification that I had buffed and polished over the years. I called it learning, and it gleamed like the holy grail on the mantle of my life. I love learning, and I always will. It wakes me up in the morning like a golden retriever who's ready to go out and pee. Like a great novel, it keeps me up until the wee hours of the night. That quest to learn, to grow, is a powerful force in my life, no doubt. But it had gone unchecked and at times had run rampant to my own detriment. I've come to believe that this is the story of how I made myself invisible. Upon this realization, I made a commitment to myself. I want to learn and love all of me more. I want to find my un and put it in its proper place, snugged up against conditional. I've always thought the state of loving myself unconditionally was a bit lofty for me, even as I desired it. It seemed like a tall order to deliver for myself, an enlightened state that was a mite far out of my reach. But then I got inspired when one of my women's circles engaged in a conversation about this very thing, and I decided to try an experiment with myself. It began when we touched upon the notion of unconditional friendliness, a concept that Tara Brock writes about in her book, Radical Acceptance. As we discussed this idea of naming all of our thoughts and emotions inside ourselves as a way of honoring what was true, someone mentioned the poem, The Guest House by Rumi. In only the way a Sufi mystic can, he makes a compelling case to invite all the pieces of ourselves to enter us as if they were welcome guests in our homes. That poem literally stopped me in my tracks, having me see I've been really selective about what emotions I let in. Fast forward a few days and I find myself out on a run, an ugly one. I'm out of shape and I feel it. I start to berate myself for the slovenly choices that have gotten me to this point. But then I catch myself. I think of Rumi and his guest house and I decide to give it a try. What have I got to lose? So I open the door, wincing a little. I'll admit, and invite in the long line of visitors that have amassed on the, f on the porch to enter my proverbial guest house. I acknowledge each with a curt nod, saying their names as they enter. Disgust, shame, pity, panic, anger, disappointment, apathy, fear, denial, sorrow, regret. With each passing guest, I find I am more easily able to meet their eyes, adopting a more the merrier sort of attitude. I made a game of it. To the casual observer, I was a woman plodding along at a slow jog, mumbling things to, my, to herself. But I knew I was having a major moment. Then the oddest thing happened. I started to laugh. At first it was a chuckle, and then it was an outright guffaw as I looked at the pathetic parade of characters I had just let into my house. I felt strangely lighter and more free, no longer so combative or resistant to the experience I was having. Just then, I happened to look to the left, and there, on this triangle patch of park, a toddler was learning to walk, squealing with delight 
at her ability to move freely. And that's when I truly understood what Rumi meant when he said, meet them at the door laughing. Because as I watched this young child take each step, it seemed like a preposterous notion for her to worry, berate herself, or be mean-spirited at a time of concentrated effort. She wasn't lamenting all the weeks she could have been out there practicing walking instead of sitting chewing on cloth donuts. She wasn't comparing herself to her friends in the park who were walking faster without wobbling. She was simply reveling in her moment. I wanted to revel in more of mine. Since that day running, I've played with this practice even more, consciously training myself to turn and face what I was feeling rather than outrun it or pretend it doesn't exist. I was hungry for more, more of the me that I had not been acknowledging. I was ready to revel. One day, I decided to pick a big, hulking beast of a guest, the one that tended to cast a shadow over all the other guests standing on my front porch. Its name was Overwhelmed. And I'm not talking about being buried underneath piles of things to do or lists of intentions to hold, as much as I'm talking about the thoughts and feelings I had about those things. What the hell am I doing? You don't know what you're doing. Yes, you do. Hold the faith. Don't lose focus. When did Milo get his rabies shot last? Isn't he due? That dog needs much more love than we give him. Is my kid too confident? Shouldn't he be more humble? Am I humble enough? I don't know what I'm doing. I'm totally messing up. No one knows what they're doing. He's your first child. Cut yourself some slack. Our educational system needs major reform. I need to get more involved. I really like that chocolate brown skirt in the Sundance catalog. But really, don't I have enough long skirts? There's too much stuff in the world. Too much stuff in our house. We've got to purge. I haven't spoken to her in a while. I should really reach out to her, but I don't want to. Why is that? Are we out of paper towels again? You're fine. Go for a run. Sit on the beach. Write. I don't have time. I have too much time. Sigh. Welcome to my brain on any given day. So this is what I mean by overwhelmed. The constant churning of thoughts and emotions that can conspire to knock you out of whack and keep you off center unplugged and spinning like a top. Overwhelmed was like that the one that hunted me down the most frequently, chasing me like a junkyard dog nipping at my heels as I frantically tried to run away from it. So when it showed up again, I decided to use the guest house strategy instead of getting all sweaty. I took myself for a walk on the beach, imagining I was queen of my castle and mistress of my domain. As I wrapped my mental arms around this image, I allowed myself to see that I presided over a large kingdom with lots of town people who demanded my attention and looked to me to lead and ensure peace throughout the land. I got myself into that place walking on the beach that day, feeling my lush red throne under my ass, composing myself as I heard the shuffling of feet and sensed a long line gathering outside the door. When I felt ready, I opened the door and I received my first visitor. I heard what it had to say, listened patiently to its complaints, experience, idea, or saga, and responded accordingly. Then I had them ushered out and the next visitor came in. It went something like this. Oh, anger, it's you again. 
What say you now? Yeah, that's still bugging you. I can imagine it is. Sounds like you're going through a pretty rough patch there. Yep, that's right. More room out than in, I always say. Feel better? Ah, good. Well, off you go. Worry. Long time no see. What is it this time? Oh, I see. Yes, well, that is concerning, isn't it? I'd be a mite bit anxious about that myself. What do you plan to do about that? What is it you need from me? Oh, well, that's not too difficult. I can certainly honor that request. Good to see you again, too. Ah, creative spirit. You're looking a little ragged today. Stop much? You seem to be frothing at the mouth a bit. Why don't you try swallowing? How I do love your enthusiasm. It's charming, really, but I can see how it takes a toll on you. What do you think you need most at this moment? Ah, wise choice. I highly agree. Off you go, then. You there. Speak up now. What is that? Oh, hurt. I don't believe we've ever met, but it's a pleasure. I'm sorry. You're going to have to speak louder. I'm having trouble hearing you. That's better. Oh, I see. Well, now, that is quite a story. I don't blame you one bit. I'd feel the same way, I suspect. Now, now, here's a tissue. It'll all work itself out. You'll see. Next. And so it went. I knew I'd finally gotten to the end of the line when I started to get bored and was waiting for longer periods of time in between each visitor. I astounded myself, actually, at how many visitors I could conjure up. And with each one, I actually felt more and more hospitable, charitable even. I truly felt like a benevolent queen. With this crazy, awesome exercise, it helped me to see that with all those unwanted and hard thoughts, they simply wanted to be acknowledged and heard. They were just asking to be received by me as their host. Like the irate customer who calls a technology support line, they quieted down and even said thank you once they'd been heard and validated as true. Dismissing, dodging, denying, debating, it just prolonged the battle. Clearly this was some basic care and feeding I could do for myself. Forget the tall glass of loving myself unconditionally. What I needed, I decided, was more emotional nourishment, just a simple misting of water rather than a solid dousing. That was a start. In case it's not patently obvious by now, what I'm talking about is the desire to see my own worth, to give myself the same respect and admiration that others have so graciously doled out to me in my life, to see my whole self and, in doing so, start to believe that I am worthy of enduring admiration and love, even, especially, in the face of my foibles and shortcomings. I want to witness myself in my own life and be the same loyal champion that I know I am for others. I owe that much to myself. So I am on the hunt to gather more of myself where I can. So that's chapter four of my book entitled Gathering Myself. And here's a bit of a, a riff as I am reading this nearly a year, year and a half after I, I wrote it. Um, this is a constant, constant thing. This is not recognizing myself and seeing myself fully in how I show up in the world is not a one-time event. It's a constant event. And I find that it 
it asks me to, um, I circle back to this sort of gathering of myself in times of, in the wake of some intense growth where I have reached for something, which has me feel vulnerable, which has me feel insecure, which has me feel full of doubt or anxious. Um, so that's when I tend to it most, and I've actually come to expect it. So even in the instance of putting out this podcast, this is totally new for me. I have no idea where this is going to go or if it will be a value to people who are listening to it. So, yeah, I feel vulnerable. I feel... Um, insecure. I feel scared. I feel in my head about it. Um, I have questions. I have doubts. All of that sort of stuff. So I sort of name those as I'm feeling as a way of gathering all the bits and pieces of myself, um, which by naming them, gathering them and naming them, it's a form of honoring, which I'm calling emotional, the emotional nourishment. So what I'm talking about is recognizing myself. And I've given you some, in this chapter, I talked about some tools that I use, um, writing and the guest house sort of stuff, the naming um, that Tara Brock talks about in her book, um, uh, Unconditional Friendliness. Another resource that I'd offer that has you go outside yourself, but I found it really, really useful comes from Daniel Laporte's book, um, which if you haven't read it, is such an awesome book, uh, The Firestarter Sessions. And in that book, I can't remember where, but somewhere in that book, she has a worksheet that she discusses um, at length. And it's called, it's in the same spirit of gathering yourself. And it's called the Ask a Friend Survey. And it's about, I think it's like nine amazingly crafted questions that you send in an email to like four or five trusted people um, that um, you ask them to mirror mirror yourself back, mirror you back to yourself. And so these are people who you feel like see you really well and they respond to these questions. So one of the questions is like, what do you, what do I not, see? what is one of my greatest gifts that I don't see in myself that you would love for me to see? Um, so they're awesome questions, and you pick your people wisely. You send this out, and I'm not going to lie, it takes some chops to do it because it, it asks that you make yourself vulnerable. But it yields such amazing, um, amazing data points back to yourself at a time where you might not be seeing yourself. So that's a great tool. Um, and so this whole process of gathering and seeing all the pieces of yourself, um, it really is about receiving. And as we, as you know, I'm sure women women struggle with this. It's about receiving, and it, it's we don't necessarily struggle with the hard stuff. Um, we struggle with receiving the good stuff. So one of the places I'll often work with my clients and with my and with myself in my own business is to tune your ear and pay attention to what are the compliments you are most given. What are the words that people use to associate with you most frequently? And that is your value trying to find its way back to you. So if you can tune your ears and even write them down, collect them, make a list of the compliments you are most given, you will start to see um, what 
how you are being seen and what you're putting out into the world, which is your value, which is your worth. Um, so that's a great way of sort of tracking yourself and gathering yourself. And here's what I'd um, leave with you. So what we're talking about here, you know that Marianne Williamson quote, um, it is not our darkness that we are most afraid of, is it, it is our light. That's kind of what we're talking about is that... Um, is being being afraid of just how bright we are and our capacity to be luminous and to shine. So when I look at my passion of women leading in the world, it's not their shortcomings and their fears and their doubts um, and their skills that are getting in the way. It's our um, how miserly we can be with our own... Um, seeing how bright we are. We are conscious. We, we tend to dim ourselves um, more than we really let the brightness shine. That, and that is within our own control. That dimming switch, that's, a, that's something that's in, within our own control. And that's where I love to play with my, my own work and with the work that I work with with women. So to acknowledge that when you feel that um, desire to shrink or to dim ourselves, to sort of name what is the fear that's having me try to turn down the dimming switch. A lot of times in my case, it's uh, the fear of seeming arrogant or seeming full of myself or conceited or um, what's the other word? Um, self-indulgent, um, a, a self-centered, all of those sort of things that can trigger the retraction in a woman that you probably know all too well. So here's the thing that I'd leave you with, is if we can't see ourselves fully as women, why would other people, and how, could, how can other people see us fully if we, haven't, if we don't fully see ourselves? So my invitation to you is to go first. See if you can mine the outer reaches of yourself and on a continual basis, not a one-time event, and start to name all of the, um, the furthest reaches of your own internal geography. Because when I look at women getting promoted and women getting valued and women getting seen, um, where I like to play is what is within our control of that. So if you're not feeling valued, if you're, not, if you're feeling like uh, you're being invisible or your contributions, you're offering contributions and someone else might be getting credit for them, um, ask yourself to what degree you're allowing yourself to be visible and even amp that up to the point of being luminous. To what degree are you allowing yourself to shine brightly and bring yourself more fully into the world and where could you turn up the dial on that okay then so thanks for listening to this episode and here's to living unscripted having access to more of who we are and letting our bright lights shine freely go forth and be luminous